Nicholas, my God, for a first-time event for you, Mike, you you got it. You've got that look, and you're going to be that director and that writer that people are going to watch. My God. <laughs> That's very sweet of you. Thank you. What what was that journey like for you to take it, you know, first of all, to plant it on a page and then take the idea out to say, I'm, I'm making a movie, and this is going to be that movie? Uh, I mean, uh, whether it's, you know, absolute stupidity, uh, naivete, ignorance, uh, luck, skill, whatever you want to call it. I just, you know, this is what I want to do. I wrote the film that I wanted to make and I made a film I wanted to watch. And, uh, you know, that's 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 where we are. So it was, uh, you know, it, it, I had to do it. So I didn't have a choice. Who was that 13 year old kid that you were doing? I realize it was you. But who? what was the thing that he was looking for in movies that you felt like, OK, this is the movie for him? I mean, you know, I, I talk about that uh, a lot is, is the, the the beginning of this whole thing. My fascination with film and everything was uh, in my friend's basement in Pennsylvania. Uh, literally, we went to the uh, to the rental store and it's like, you know, the kid was probably 16 years old and he like slid the cassette over. It's like, you boys need to watch this. <laughs> and it's Reservoir Dogs. And, you know, it's like, it's rated R though. I don't know if we should. And I remember watching that vhs and just jaw on the floor um it just it was absolutely everything that i first of all didn't know movies could be i didn't know cinema could be that but then everything that i wanted out of a film and i i just remember i i it, it changed everything for me uh before that it was it was big and it was the 80s films and it was die hard and it was uh you know it was just all the films that we that we absolutely love and we still love but it wasn't reservoir dogs it wasn't uh, the the independent renaissance and the 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 neo noir and the, the brutality and I just I fell in love with that. Well, you create conflict right from the very beginning. I mean, when the new preacher comes to town and right away he's not trusted, it's like, oh, sit back, this is going to be a ride. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know, I I, I say that I. I didn't, uh, it's not a unfamiliar story. I didn't want to tell a new story no one's seen before. It's a high school and wrong film. That is a very, very standard familiar trope, but I wanted to use that as a background to tell a more uh, personal intense uh, story between the characters and between their struggle with good, uh, 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 right and wrong, good and evil, uh, and, and how that translates through their actions throughout the film. The movie we're talking about is Mobland, which is now available digitally as well as um, a movies on demand. The thing about this, the, the, the storyline here is the fact that it feels like it's real America. I realize that you're in Alabama. I grew up in Montana and, and drugs up there are a part of the agriculture. And I'm here in the Carolinas now. And I really felt like that you you came here to my town to talk about something that's going on. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think. Uh, I love uniquely American stories, um, and I especially love uniquely American settings, um, landscapes, locations. So especially the Rust Belt, uh, and then the, and then the South is just it just feels so incredibly uniquely American. And then when you throw into that some fairly uniquely American uh, epidemics, whether it's opioids or um, you know the economy and jobs leaving these small towns. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes uh, for a for a really interesting um, setting uh, landscape to tell this type of story. I, I'm, I'm glad I did research on you before I watched the movie in the way that I understand the cars in the movie, because they're a major part of this storyline as well. But when you hear your story about, you know, when, when you went to Alabama to you know, for the races and things like that, it's like, OK, now I get it now. Oh, this is so cool. 
Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a car guy. I love cars. Um, and then I also love the South. Uh, both parents born and raised in Mississippi. Uh, the South is very familiar to me. I understand the people. I understand the uh, the tickets throughout the South anyway. Um, so I knew I wanted to use that also as uh, um, more of a backdrop. But uh, yeah, I spend a lot of time and effort to get the cars right in the film. Mm-hmm. And I think any car guy, whether you're you know, GM or Mopar or whoever, you know, whatever you're into, I think you're going to watch this and you're going to be like, oh yeah, that's, they, they did right. It's not the brand new 68, 69 Camaro. It's, you know, it's the duster. It's the right car. <laughs> so I, I had a lot of fun, uh, you know, obsessing over the cars. Sheriffs are usually given either a good rap or a bad rap. Travolta puts himself inside this movie in a way where you go, I love him. I, I've got to have more of him, but oh, I, do I trust him? And so you find yourself attracted to that character. Yeah, you know, it's and I think you could probably say that about all the characters. And that's, yeah. you know, what I set out to do is that, you know, they're the blurring the line between the antagonist and protagonist is really uh, the whole point of of the film. Um, uh, whether you do good for bad reasons or do bad for good reasons, you know, does it matter? And does that affect truly who you are as a as a human and as a human uh, you know, and how you treat other people. So, uh, you know, every character struggles with that, whether you're the sheriff, whether you're, you know, Stephen Dorff's character coming from the mob, whether you're Shiloh, a small town uh, uh, father, you know, they're all kind of battling, um, making these decisions that define or that should define if they're good or bad. But, uh, you know, uh, they're not really sure which one it is. Yeah, I mean, the, the way that you really, you know, depict de- survival inside this, I mean, and the struggle itself, I mean, you either survive or you break the law. That in itself is just so intense. And and I, and I think it's part of the, the candy, basically, that kept me so attracted to that screen. Yeah, you know, I wanted to make sure that all of the violence, all of the, uh, you know, the decisions made, I wanted the audience to have a sense of uh, uh, empathy with that. I wanted nothing to be so far gone yeah. that the average person couldn't see themselves maybe making the same decision in that situation. Um, but at the same time, you know, really pushing those limits to where it was very, very uncomfortable uh, to watch, um, but still think like, damn, I might do that same thing in that situation. How did you write out the scene where, where Rob is, is, you know, they're trying to convince Rob to rob the uh, the oxy plant? Because, I mean, that in itself, I mean, I, I, as a writer myself, there those are the scenes that I have to come back to several times to see if I'm getting the emotion right. No, I, I you know, I didn't know who was going to play Trey at the time. OK, um, so it was it was, uh, you know, I. I had an idea of who these characters were, obviously, because, you know, I wrote it, but, uh, you know, it just kind of flowed. Uh, You know, as a writer, you understand that every single character is also you 100 percent. And so uh, putting myself in those situations and really coming from, again, a place of empathy uh, that I think every writer has to do. um, You know, that's how I did it. It was it was really just how would I. Uh, if I were Trey and I were in this situation in this town with my family, how would I talk someone into doing this uh, while truly believing it's it's the righteous thing to do? I think one of the greatest things that happened that wasn't filmed was John Travolta sitting down with you saying, why do you want to make this movie? See, that to me is a connection. Uh, yeah, you know, that was uh, that's what I loved about John. I love that he, um, you know, he wasn't as concerned i don't think about hey are you going to make me look cool are you going to screw this up are you going to finish this story do we have to worry you know uh the very first conversation i had with him was 
was, you know, why do you feel compelled to tell this story? Why do you think Bodhi is the character he is? Why does he make those decisions? They were very personal um, and very passionate and artistically driven questions. And I really love that about it, that our, our first conversation, it was a very, very personal conversation right out the gate. Um, and I think that as a, a movie star, if he's to the point where he's going to have a conversation with a first time director on a mm -hmm. small budget independent film, he's already committed to some degree. And so he's beyond saying maybe yes or no. And it's like, hey, let's really get to the heart of this so we can work together. So did you have to play by those indie rules, get those shots as quickly as possible because time is money? Oh my God, you have no clue. I mean, that's, that's all it was. It was, we, principal photography was 11 days. It was, which is, you know, if anyone knows anything about filmmaking is borderline reckless. It was so incredibly fast. And without the cast I had and the crew as well, um, being so prepared, there's just no chance we would have uh, gotten half the film we were able to get and, uh, and really tell the story that we wanted to tell. So yeah, it was, uh, time is always money and on an 11 day schedule with literally shoestring budget uh, yeah, it is It is very evident that time is money. I, I remember when Lionsgate first appeared on, on the movie scene, and now look at them growing. I mean, what is it like to sit down with these guys at Lionsgate and say, hey, look, I've got a movie that I think you need to support? You know, I, I was lucky enough to be shielded some degree by my producer. He is the one who had all those conversations. Uh, my producer, Corey Large, put me in a great position where it's like, hey, I'm going to take care of all the BS. I'm going to put you in a position to, you know, give you everything you need within budget and schedule, uh, you know, to do, do your best job and deliver a product. So, you know, I, I really didn't have to deal with too much of the, the, uh, the politics, um, you know, the minutia, I got to really focus on just making the film. Yeah, because a lot of people don't understand the business side of movie making. I mean, the, you know, the, the shaking the hands, the kissing the babies. Once the film is done, you've got trade screenings. You've got to go over here and you've got to show it off here. You've got critic screenings. You've, you've got to put it, put it out there for people. I mean, you got you, the press I'm doing now. I mean, the entire thing uh, is a business. I mean, make no mistake about this. People are passionate about filmmaking across the board, no matter if they're a large studio, small, but it's, it's a business. We're here to make money. Um, you know, we're selling a product, we're getting, uh, uh, ticket sales and VOD sales. That's what this is. Um, you know, Lionsgate, Savon, no one's going to touch this if they don't think they can make money from it. Yeah. Um, you know, that being said, it's, it's always nice to have some passionate people behind you who also care about the, uh, you know, the artistic uh, side of filmmaking. But, you know, this is a business through and through. And I think, uh, you know, somebody like me coming from commercial photography, advertising, directing, um, I understand selling a product and I know that that's part of it. And so playing the game, doing the press, you know, everything that goes along with it, kissing the babies, like you said, you know, it's 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 all a part of it. Could you have turned this into a six part series and put it on Hulu or Netflix? Because it, 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 the story feels like that there could be more because there's background characters uh, you know, to know more about the town, to know more about, you know, different action uh, scenes that were taken. Yeah, I mean, I, I love episodic TV. I love uh, miniseries. I I would absolutely love to do one of those at some point. I never saw this as being one of those. I always saw it as how can I tell this story in an hour and 45, hour, 50 minutes? Uh, how can I cram everything that I want into it? And, uh, you know, I, I actually wanted there to be a pretty definitive end to it so yeah. that there's no sequels. You know, I... 
Uh, I'll be honest. I was going to officially, or at first, I was going to name this uh, this film "Everyone Dies" because <laughs> uh, you know, and, and not to give anything away, but uh, most everyone dies, and uh, you know, I think that's that's uh, that's kind of you know part of the story is that it's not only the death of the American dream, and and you know, I wanted there to be very very. Uh, I wanted there to be full resolution in the characters, but not in the themes. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's kind of thematically what the story is. Not to give anything away, uh, but I'll, I'll tell you what, though, there's still something that I carry inside my head and my heart. And I hear it in my ears. The final sound of the movie. I, I, and I, I don't, I don't want to spoil anything, but my God, dude, I'm still carrying that. Yeah, you know, it was it was fun. It was, you know, I, I wrote it that way. I really, you know, people say that you uh, there's three movies: the movie you write, the movie you shoot, the movie that's on screen. And for me, it was uh, I wrote the film I shot, and the film I shot is on screen. And you know, knowing I knew always knew that's how the film was going to end. I love that about it. Um, I wanted it to be definitive. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's 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 been fun to see people react to it and uh, react to the ending and and kind of. You know, I, I love those films when the uh, the lights come on, the credits roll, and everyone just kind of stands there, you know, <laughs> looking around. It's like, you know, they they don't know how to feel. They they maybe want to clap, they maybe want to be pissed off at me. Um, but I love that. I love that uh, it leaves you uh, kind of in this in this uh, uh, you know this this gray area of. I think morality, and I think that's really fun. Oh my god, dude! I, I sat there. My, my wife was ready to go, and I said, "No, no, 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 no! Sit down, sit down. We, I, I have to really kind of just hold on to this. I need, I need to yeah. put myself back into a real world here." Yeah, you know, and what I love is uh, Jason Dodson, who's the singer of a band called the Maldives. Um, he recorded that song for me in his laundry room after reading the script. Really, um, and I, I love that. That's the song that plays at the credits. And if you, I mean, he wrote it for the script. He wrote it for the film. He and I had him do it for the end credits. So there's a lot in that song as well. And I, I do feel like that the song, uh, the color of the credits, um, mm -hmm. you know, everything is for me. It's as important uh, as the rest of the film, at least as an ending to it, because I do think that it's a little bit of a, uh, uh, you know, a little bit of a prologue. It's a little bit of a or an epilogue. It's a little bit of a an ending with that song. Yeah. Speaking of the color of the background, how about that scene with Travolta with the red in the background? Dude, that, that's a poster <laughs> right there, man. Oh God. I, you know, that was, we, we go into this room, we scout the location and I knew I wanted to paint that room. Uh, the same thing with the mural in the pill clinic. Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted that. Um, and funny enough, it's, I always saw that room as being blue. Um, and it's, you know, it's in the trailer. So I could, you know, it doesn't give anything away. It's a red room. But, uh, you know, the more I started uh, in pre-production, it's, uh, you know, the color red plays a very, very specific and, and, and big role in this film. And having that red room and having the size of that room yeah. and the amount of action that takes place in this room um, during the robbery and after is just so incredibly unsettling. <laughs> but also there's something very, very beautiful and cinematic about it. Yeah. Um, so, I yeah, I really love that. It's it's one of my favorite scenes with Travolta just because it's, it looks so good. And that's because of my DP, but it's also, it's, it just, it stays, it's so brutal. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a harsh scene, even though it's a quiet, uh, a little introspective uh, for Travolta's character. It's still a very brutal scene because of that color. Mm. The song, the house of the rising sun, you went totally 100% original with it. My God. And, and, and it kind of sneaks up on you into, into the movie. 
So, yeah, I, you know, this is this came from necessity. Uh, you know, when you're doing a low budget independent film, how do we uh, how do we get songs? How do you so, so almost every song outside of the score is a friend of mine. It's a band that I know. Wow. It's somebody giving me music or it's me reaching out to a band that I don't know and saying, hey, I would love to use this song. <laughs> so, uh, you know, House of the Rising Sun is public domain. Um, it's it was recorded, I think, originally in the 20s. Um, the the animals version that we know is, of course, copywritten. Um, so you can't use their arrangement, um, but the song itself is not. So that's always been a song that I knew uh, it was in public domain. I knew that I loved it. And once I started dabbling with that song and I was using the animals version as a placeholder, a friend hooked me up with uh, Devin McCluskey, the singer who recorded that. Um, I sent him the clip and within maybe five, six, seven hours, he had that version back to me. Oh um, he he loved the scene that I sent him and he was, I mean, he, I listened to it and I was like, good God, like that's it. Like that is, it's so haunting and his voice is so great for it. It was just, it was the perfect song, I think. And it wasn't just, you know, like I said, it was, it, it came from, uh, uh, from necessity because I needed a song I didn't have to pay for. But then calling in the flavor, uh, that, that song wouldn't have been what, half of a quarter of what it is if it wasn't uh, for Devin McCluskey's vocals. Wow. Nicholas, you got to come back to this show anytime in the future. The door is always going to be open for you. And thank you so much for having me. That was a blast. Really appreciate the time. Man, I'll tell you what, I'm truly going to be following you because, I mean, you've, you've got movie making down and I, it's just going to be fun to watch you grow. I really appreciate it, man. I can't wait to do another one and uh, be back on the show. Absolutely. Be brilliant today, sir. All right, buddy. Have to take care.